Repodcasting is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Hey everyone, Lucia here. I just wanted to give you a heads up that I had some audio issues during the recording of this episode. Thankfully, Jillian's microphone was working fine, but mine was not. And unfortunately, I didn't know that until we were finished recording. So I've tried to make it as listenable as possible. Is listenable a word? And I didn't want to scrap the whole episode since Jillian was really generous with her time and she was really thoughtful and intelligent during the interview. So I don't want to rob you of hearing what she has to say. I hope you'll still listen and I apologize for how terrible I sound in this interview. Thanks. Before we begin this very special episode, I just want to remind everyone that the Alberta Podcast Network's listener survey is still open, but only until June 17th. So if you're listening to this episode right when it dropped, you still have the chance to make your feelings known. Don't wait. Take the survey today at albertapodcastnetwork.com slash survey. And now let's start the show. Have you ever watched a movie and wondered why they cast that woman or that guy? Well, here's our chance to give it a try. We're repodcasting. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Repodcasting. I'm Lucia and unfortunately Janet is not here with me today, but we do have a very special guest instead. We have filmmaker Jillian McCurcher. Hey, thanks for having me. Hi Jillian, thanks for coming on the podcast. We're really, both Janet and I are really excited to uh, hear what you have to say. Yeah, well I'm happy to be here. It's great. Awesome. Jillian, you and I know each other from the Calgary International Film Festival, and I started working there last year where your feature film was debuting. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I can't believe that was only, it wasn't even a year ago. (laughs) And uh, so that film is called Circle of Steel. Can you tell me a little bit about why you decided to make Circle of Steel? For sure. So I started writing Circle of Steel while I was still employed in the oil and gas industry. And at the time, there was a lot of, um, there was a lot of stuff changing in Alberta. So firstly, layoffs had been announced, oil had crashed um, because of a production. Basically, the Middle East or OPEC had decided not to cap their oil production. So it kind of changed and shook global prices. So that affected us in Alberta by job uncertainty. So there was that happening. But also at the same time, there was a a report that had come out from the UN talking about green energy and the transition into uh, electrification that was not dependent on fossil fuels. So in Alberta, a lot of our fossil fuels, well, a lot of electricity was like coal or natural gas. And so it really was interesting for me to read this report. Um, So the reason I made Circle of Steel was just a combination of these things. This uncertainty, both for the future of the world, but also for yourself as an individual and what what that means as an existential concept. So what is the point of going to work? Why do you go to work? And for a lot of us, I think we're not passionate about the jobs that we do, and it's not a judgment call on anyone. It's just the way that it is. So that's why I made Circle of Steel to approach that question in a way that I knew, which was oil and gas. And um, just for those who don't know the movie, can you just tell a little brief synopsis? For sure. So we start off with a young female engineer called Wendy Fong. 
Basically, the film starts with her performance review, and she's told that she's acceptable. So already she's told she's average, and then layoffs get announced. And so from the beginning of the film till the end, we watch as a very small, isolated field team, because she works in the field, reacts to this news and the impending date of layoffs. So it's a character-driven uh, drama that I like to think of it as a dark comedy because I am poking fun at some archetypes that you get, not just in oil and gas, but just in business and corporate life anyways. And um, yeah, it's just, it's a portrait of people living in the field. And then also the first time a disruption comes in your life when you're like, what if I don't get to do what I was planning on doing for the rest of my life? Yeah. Wow. I can't wait to see it. Sorry, I haven't seen it yet. I was working during the festival. <laughs> oh, yeah. We were all so busy. Yeah. So you said you were writing it while you were still working in the field. Mm -hmm. um, have you always been interested in writing? Yes. So I wanted to be a screenwriter from when I was really little. So I was obsessed with the Oscars. I wish I had a cool story about how I got into film where it's like, yeah, like... I spoke French and I know the French new wave like defined me when I was a kid. Like, no, I watched the Oscars. I didn't know what any of the rules were. And especially because my family doesn't have any artistic background. Like there are artistic people, but no one has ever done anything in the arts. So the only thing I knew that I could do when I was a kid was screenwrite because you just need a piece of paper. So I really wanted to be a screenwriter from probably like elementary school. Wow. Yeah. And then... As I got older, I learned a little bit more about what directors do. Then, you know, Wikipedia had just come out, so I could actually look up what auteur meant when people said that. And then I've always wanted to do this. So then what brought you to engineering? <laughs> so I mentioned that my family, like, the arts just seemed like a very intangible, ambiguous, like, nebulous thing that just kind of happened. So I think now... I. My parents just came from a place of protection. They wanted to assist me in success in life as much as they could. So they both come from oil and gas. They're both geologists. Uh, their parents are technically based or business based. And they're like, we know that you can succeed this way. Why would you go into the arts where there's job uncertainty? How are you going to make money? It seems like a hobby. They also didn't know a single person who could assist me at all and like, sure. or even talk to. Yeah. So. I was really pressured by my parents to go into engineering and I don't fault them for that now. I totally thank them. Engineering is the most practical degree in the world yeah. and it prepares you for life. Like, you know, yeah. it's fucking hard. Oh, yeah, you no, can okay. bleep that out. You can totally say that. Um, okay. It's so hard. Yeah. So yeah, that's why I did it. Like I was a super overachiever in high school. Like my parents, more my mom and like, I love her, but she like, I did AP and I did all my diplomas in like grade 11 and wow. it was hardcore. Amazing. Wow. Um, <laughs> yeah, my family has no arts backgrounds either. And I definitely chose engineering because it was practical. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I wanted to have a job at the end. And when I was either 11 or 12, I told my parents I wanted to be an actress and they laughed. So I was like, oh, I guess not. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So I was like, okay, I guess I got to be practical and do something that... You know, after you leave university, you're pretty sure you can get a job. Absolutely. That's the same path that I was directed towards. And I also totally understand that. Like, mm -hmm. I think as a parent, when you say, I, w I raised my child successfully, you want to say, they can pay their mortgage or they can pay their rent on time. I don't need to give them handouts. They know how to go to the doctor when they're not feeling well. Like, those are things that you grade your success as a parent. Yeah. And I feel mm -hmm. like... It sounds like our parents, the idea of supporting us into like becoming actors or screenwriters, that wasn't realistic advice. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, it's totally fair. <laughs> but I'm really excited that after you did engineering, you managed to be a screenwriter and a director and follow your passion. That's incredible. Thank you. Yeah, good for you. So Circle of Steel was your first feature film, mm-hmm. but you did do some shorts before that. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. And how many did you do? I don't know. Oh. I kind of self-curate. Like everything, everything that I've done right from the beginning has been the best thing at the time. Okay. But now I, um, I would have to go back and count. I think I didn't make any mistakes in school because I didn't go to film school. So a lot of the mistakes I published and then now I've kind of like hidden away, um, which I, it's still nice at the time. But yeah, I had done some short films, mainly experimental and documentary. The Calgary collection is still available for people to see if they wanted to see that. That's awesome. Probably because I had a co-creator, Mike Todd, <laughs> who was quality control for sure. But then, yeah, I also did a few narrative shorts. Okay, so you learned by doing. Yes. Yeah, for sure. And so how, if this is too... No, go, go for it. Tell me if you don't want to answer. <laughs> um, but how were you able to secure funding in that way, like if you had no experience? Mm-hmm. Well, this is where the parents were right. So I had a summer job since I was 17. So like since I graduated high school or not even graduated. And, um, because I was in a technical field and and in school, I could apply for jobs like engineering student summer jobs or data entry at companies. And like, even if I didn't have those, like I was still getting paid pretty comparatively to my friends who were getting, who worked in landscaping or even as uh, waitresses or waiters, but I lived at home. So I lived at home. I had a job in the summertime and I worked basically a full-time job when I was in university as a ski coach, which oh, cool. pays quite well because it's so niche and I was still living with my parents. Right. So I can like, I wasn't paying room or board. Yeah. So I split university as well with my parents. So it was 50, 50 mm-hmm. and the money that I saved, I was able to spend um, on my projects. And in addition to that, I also am a member of the Calgary Society of Independent Filmmakers. And a lot of the resources there, especially if you're a production member, which if you volunteer a lot, you can get really reduced rates and access to their equipment. So that has been invaluable to me. And then of course, when you meet people, then you're like, Hey, do you have a camera? And then you don't have to rent it. You just use your friends. There you go. Nice. (laughs) That's really cool. So then were you making shorts while you were studying or while you were working as an engineer? Yes. So the shorts that I started with were more through challenges or workshops. So I did a lot of workshops through CSIF, Calgary Society of Independent Filmmakers. They don't do them so much anymore. I don't think they run it, but, and I wish they would. It was the best learning for me as a director. They would do what was called a one eight challenge. So you get one roll of super eight film and you make a film in camera. So that means that you don't get to edit it. You have to, you have to like shoot in sequence and there's no sound typically. Like you have to make a silent film in sequence. If you make a mistake, well, it's on film. And I took those very seriously. I think I've done five of them. I did five. <laughs> so, but then that's five short films, which otherwise you would never, I would never have made without the pressure of doing it. Um, also those were, had to be done within a weekend and at school I could definitely do that in a weekend and the entry fee was like 20 bucks. So it was reasonable and accessible. It's a lot of pressure though to not only have no editing, no sound and try to tell a story, but also have such a limited amount of time to do it. Oh yeah. But I got excited by that because it felt like low risk, right? Yeah. But it wasn't low risk. I took it very seriously. All of them, by the way, like turned out horribly, like (laughs) like really bad, like 
blurry, overexposed, something went wrong. Like I serious cries after each one, but you know, it's you're learning. Absolutely. Yeah. But I, I was lucky too. Like I got to meet some people who wanted to make short films. And so I didn't really make my first short film, like official short film with like a first AD and like that sort of business until I was on internship and I had time to dedicate to a short film. Even though I was working full time, I was still like on downtime, which happens at work. I like worked a lot on the, on the short. Wow. That's very cool. And so you were for your films that weren't documentaries. Well, maybe for all of them, actually, how did you decide on your subject? How did you, how did you cast them basically? Hmm. I'm a really intuitive person when it comes to casting. So except for the documentaries where, so for the Calgary collection, Mike Todd, who is the co-creator on the project, he is an ethnomusicologist. So he actually already scouted everyone. He's done radio hosting. He's, he interviewed all of the subjects for our program. He, he has a really good eye and ear for someone who's like radio ready or TV ready. So that helped with that project. But for my own stuff, I've kind of done a mixture of both traditional casting and then meeting someone and thinking that they have something special that I want to investigate. And then I spend a lot of time with them and then I offer them the rule. So I did a short film a few years ago called Manic Neko. It's not available to see anymore, but um, the actress on that, her name was Sinead Rugles. And I don't think she's done any acting since then, but we met on a project that didn't go to air. And she's first, like, I mean, aesthetically, she's so beautiful, like 10 out of 10. But she has something special in her. And for the role that I was thinking of, I wanted, I, I like, I wrote it for her because I thought she was, she had something special. So similar. And so then that's kind of how I've, my philosophy for other things. So for Circle of Steel, I knew I wanted to have a person of color and I had these ideas that were floating around in my head. And then I met Chantel and she just had everything. And so I investigated it. I asked around about her. I hadn't even seen her act yet, oh, wow. but I just offered her the role because wow. I like working with people. And there's this, I, I'm going to butcher this, but I'll paraphrase. So Elia Kazan, who directed like A Straight Car Named Desire and East of Eden, I know when he cast James Dean, when he cast James Dean, he spent a lot of time with him and he said something like, I want to know everything about this person and know them intimately so that I can use that to affect as a director. And he said something too, like, I don't want to get to use actors who are too famous because then they're molded and I want to be the one to mold them. That sounds super like creepy and, (laughs) but I kind of know where he's coming from. So it's like, you want to get intimate with people and know them. And so there are roles where, yeah, you can just like cast someone and see something and go for it. But it's nice to get to know someone and then see, see in them what you hope for the character. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's very cool. Um, with Circle of Steel, like it's not made by a big studio or anything like that, but so does that mean that you had full say in casting and, you know, you, you didn't have anybody telling you what you should be doing? Yes. Because so even though I directed the film and I wrote it, generally the producer has the last say, unless you're like Martin Scorsese and you have it in your contract, like... So usually, yeah, a producer has the last say, but I was also a producer. And then um, the two other producers on the project, they were great. They trusted me. They would obviously give their opinion on things, but for the most part, we all agreed. I had two executive producers who both gave feedback, and one was more vocal about casting than the other, but, you know, as executive producers, they didn't have 
really that much decision power over casting. So yeah, I did get to choose who I wanted and I'm so thankful that it worked out. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah. What a nice position to be in. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So even though Janet is not here physically, she's here in spirit and she sent some questions. So um, I'd love to get your feedback on these. So which filmmakers are on your radar right now or whose work in regards to film really excites you? Mm. Okay, so my favorite film, that's a really hard question and I could like, <laughs> I can list a lot of people, but there are some really, really, really exciting filmmakers right now and they're not all working in cinema. Like I really like short film and experimental film a lot. You find the best style there in, in music videos, but last year and I actually showed at the Calgary International Film Festival, there's a director from China called Bi Gan and he directed a film called Long Day's Journey Into Night. And the film before that was Kylie Blues, I think. Long Day's Journey Into Night is the only film I've seen by him and it blew my mind. It was so incredible. I cried at the end. I was so, like, it's the closest thing to dream logic that I've ever seen. And for people who haven't seen it, it's very impressionistic. There's some, this man is trying to like figure out this woman who he kind of met. I don't know, it's all a dream. But halfway through the film, he goes to a cinema and puts on glasses to watch the film is that what happens or he falls asleep point is you put on 3d glasses in the middle of the film and then there's a 55 minute single take which is incredible oh my God. yeah it's wild and so when i saw that it was like inspiration where you're like oh my gosh he's only he's only 28 or 29 oh, so wow. he's super young he's taking a risk because because it was done in 3d and like the camera's flying sometimes, it's on the ground. There's animals involved and kids. It's almost like a throwback to the old days when, like digital in a way isn't an advantage here. It's like, you still have only so much time for all of these man this manpower to work. So they only did like six takes. Six 55 minute takes. Yeah, and it's exhausting. <laughs> like think yeah. about, oh, oh my, my gosh, gosh, that poor camera operator. Yeah. And the actors too. Mm -hmm. It was just so inspiring to see someone who's like young and ambitious and trying to push the bounds of cinema. So he's a filmmaker who I really admire and I hope I get to meet him one day. I was like mm -hmm. trying to figure out how to make my way to interior China. <laughs> Hasn't happened, but yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> That's really cool. And so what was the last movie you watched that blew you away and resonated deeply? Okay. So that there was obviously <laughs> that film because I'm talking at length about it, but um, most recently it was Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Oh. I was, I don't know what I was expecting when I watched it, but it also blew my mind. I thought it just took my breath away. The animation style, the writing, the heart in the film. And I think that it wouldn't have worked if it wasn't animation. Um, it reminded me again, the vitality of animation and how that film is for everyone. Um, I think Spider-Man 2 is one of the best superhero films of all time. And I think that... Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse is as good as that film. It's going to go down. So that film, breathtaking. Cool. I actually haven't seen it yet, but I'll have to get on that. Definitely watch it. You can rent it. I rewatched it with my family because my dad's a big Spider-Man fan. I'm like, Dad, we have to watch this. Well, what's so funny is I've heard so much praise about the movie, but I still haven't heard anything about what the movie is like i know it's animated i know it's spider-man mm -hmm. but that's it so i can still kind of go in fresh which is cool yeah go in fresh because i didn't know that much about it either i was honestly disinterested in the film until i decided on the plane i'm like okay i'll watch it and then mm -hmm. I, I was like crying and yeah so yeah. good cool that's awesome and who would be some of your dream film collaborators dream film collaborators 
That is really tough. Uh, Don Cheadle. Ah. I'm obsessed with him. Okay. Yeah, he's... I've only seen him in a handful of roles, but... um, So Steven Soderbergh is a hero of mine, and he said, like, if you can ever work with Don Cheadle, do it. And so Don Cheadle is in one of my favorite films, Out of Sight. And then he's also in Ocean's Eleven, and he's, like, totally different in both. And then he's in Hotel Rwanda. He's basically, like, the most incredible actor ever. So, yeah, as an actor, I think he'd be amazing. There are some cinematographers who I think make really beautiful work. Um, Whoever works with Noah Baumbach, and I feel bad that I don't know, like, they shoot on a camera, which I have also had access to. But the stuff they do, it just looks so fresh and good. Like, that'd be cool. And then I'm trying to think about, like, people from the past. But I don't know, like, if Nicholas Roeg were to shoot my film, that would be cool. But he's also, like, a director. And directors don't usually collaborate oh, so okay. much. <laughs> but uh, you were a director for your film. Yeah. Do you find yourself to be a collaborator? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I have to. But so much of it is about team creation. It's like anything. I'm always thinking of heist films. Like, you know, when someone's like, <laughs> we're going to rob the bank. And okay. then you, most of the fun is seeing them prepare and, like, choose, uh-huh. right? Yeah. So for making a film, it's the same way. And this first one, you know, some of my choices were great. Some of them, you know, we I have to rethink that. And that's part of the learning process. It's just going to get more interesting as I meet more people and get more experience. Cool. Wow. You definitely seem like a very open, collaborative person to me. So I, it was funny that you said directors aren't generally collaborative. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, of course, I'm only going to talk about my good qualities on the air. <laughs> but there are times, you know, where you, it feels like you're fighting with somebody, which isn't fun. And it's it comes from a place of passion on both of your ends. And maybe a little bit of ego. I can't deny that, like, when you're in the set, in the middle of creating a film, you're, the director, of course, is very egocentric because you're like, I'm right. And I'm also the producer, so I'm paying you. <laughs> um, and someone might have something really valid, and you have to, like, chew on that a little bit. And then there are also other times where, like, I'm the only person fighting for this, and it has to be this way. So, yeah, sometimes they're not very collaborative. Did you find that you had to pick and choose your battles or at the end of the day you could just kind of say you know thanks for your input but I'm kind of laying down the law here I think there are times where it's both yeah um, a lot of it's schedule driven if Mm -hmm. um of course I mean you're as an engineer you know there are times where like you know the schedule and the cost do dictate some things and then there are other times where you have more flexibility so Mm -hmm. it depended on the thing it depended on the person Depended on my emotional well-being at the time, too. So, yeah. Did you have major time crunches when making Circle of Steel? Yes. I had an amazing first assistant director. Her name is Emily Renner-Wallace. I don't think that this film could have been made or with... This film, I think, had a way bigger perceived budget because of the first AD. She brought so much professionalism, and I learned so much from her, and... Really, I depended on her, and I trusted her, and I hope we work together on like every other project from now on. But she was amazing at managing time, and we worked well together. But yeah, there were times where like, you know, some of our actors were only in certain days, so it's like you have to shoot with them on those days. Or we signed a letter of understanding with IATSE, uh, which is one of the uh, the labor unions, and you know, 
we can't go over on overtime for certain things. So she might go, okay, you have 20 minutes. Wow, that's interesting. Janet and I started this podcast because we love movies and we love talking about movies. And I started working at the film festival because of that too, but I have never tried to make a movie. So Mm -hmm. it's really interesting because, you know, I'm just used to watching the final product. Yes. So there's very little I know about the actual process. I'm a cinema nerd, but in like some, I think fellow cinema nerds will hate me for saying this. Like in some ways it doesn't matter how the film gets made. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. That could totally like come to bite me. I mean, what I'm trying to say is when you see the final product, it's hard to appreciate everything else that happens because you're, you have it in a 90 minute morsel and the other stuff happened already. It's in the past. It's already been executed, but the nice thing about podcasts like this is you get to, you do get to recognize everyone else. Like I'm actually not a believer in saying a film by, like I actually am like really against that. And you know, lots of people say a film by X, Y, Z. The reason I dislike that is because it's unlike a book or a song or where you can be the only person who puts that to piece. Even a painting, like you could be the only person who paints that. But on a film, it is impossible in most scenarios to do something on your own. And so many people bring their creative passion to it that it seems narcissistic to say that you are the originator of everything. Like you may, you might've been the project manager behind all those creative decisions, but like a filmmaker like Wong Kar Wai, like Christopher Doyle is so important to his filmmaking. Beyond that, like Tony Leung, hottest, best actor. I'm so, that would be a dream collaborator. I'm obsessed with him too. Tony Leung. Ugh. I don't know, like, his, he's such an important collaborator, an important piece in Wong Kar Wai's films. Same with, like, the costume design. Like, if the costume design wasn't good and in the mood for love, like, would it have had the, the resonance that it did? Like, maybe, maybe not. So I think it's, like, you have to acknowledge that there are other people putting their soul into the film. Yeah, of course. That's awesome. Good for you. This episode is brought to you by the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB. Check out some of the other amazing podcasts on the Alberta Podcast Network, such as Putting It Together. You know that feeling you get when you hear an idea that's so good you could hardly believe it doesn't exist already? That's the feeling we had when Kyle Marshall started talking about his latest podcast, Putting It Together. Putting It Together is a chronological look at the work of Stephen Sondheim, the great Broadway composer and lyricist. Each episode is an in-depth discussion of a song starting at the beginning with West Side Story and continuing on through Gypsy, A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Company, Sweeney Todd, Into the Woods, Assassins, and so much more. Check out Putting It Together and so many more great podcasts at albertapodcastnetwork.com. And now back to the interview. How has your experience as a filmmaker and a storyteller broadened your worldview? It's brought in my worldview in that I think I have, in my best moments, I can have more patience for people in general, where everyone has a story. And it's easy, especially now with like so much gross stuff on the internet and everything, but it's very easy to always say us versus them or to be indignant and you're always in the position of the power or I was wronged because. And I think that in making a film, and accessing these stories and not just the stories, but all the different people who are involved in it. It's made me a lot more generous to other perspectives, which doesn't mean I have to like those other perspectives very much. And I was talking to a really good friend of mine. She's a PhD in religious studies, but she's kind of like an anthropologist, sociologist in her own way. She studies people and to be a filmmaker 
it's a real privilege to be able to access this space where you don't have to declare what you believe. You are always saying what you believe through your work, but like, I'm not an activist in the way where I say like, oil is bad and my life's work is to convince you that oil is bad. My, my position as a filmmaker is to investigate the person who says that, or conversely, the other person who disbelieves that. And so I don't want to judge either of them. I want to create a piece of work which empathizes with both of their positions. And then you can kind of look at it as a, a piece okay. and make your own judgment from that. That's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, that's really good. There should be more people doing that. Because <laughs> like you said, it is very... I don't know at what point... Because I remember, sure, when you're a little kid, everything does feel black and white and good or bad, right or wrong. And then, you know, you get a little older and you realize that there are subtleties and there are shades of gray. But I don't know what is happening that everybody seems to be reverting back to black and white. And we're getting older. We're supposed to be getting wiser, no? I don't know. I think it comes from a place of fear and also maybe a lack of faith in things. And so you put your... It's easier to believe in absolutes because then it absolves you of wrongdoing. I know that I think about that a lot. I am absolved of doing wrong if this is right. Okay. Yeah, mm -hmm. so I can be offended when someone doesn't say thank you when I give them something because to not say thank you is offensive when maybe they're just having a really bad day <laughs> or maybe they're like us and like, well, not you, but like I have had very little sleep the past <laughs> week. And I am all over the place. Sure, yeah. <laughs> Who knows? You we never know. forget to say thank you once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a small example, but like if you enlarge example. it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, uh, <laughs> I get road rage very easily. I don't like driving because I, today I hurt my throat this morning from screaming at somebody. Oh, I think oh my I'm gosh. Me, I was in my car. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I can just, I'm picturing this right now. And then you're like, ah, my, my voice. <laughs> But I try, clearly I fail sometimes, but I do often try when I see somebody like, you know, make a dumb mistake while driving, I try to think, well, maybe they're tired today. Maybe they had a bad day or like whatever. Like I try to think of where they're coming from, but I also don't have that much patience. So far too often, I'm just like, ah, you dummy. <laughs> oh yeah. Like I, I also, I get road rage too. There are things that <laughs> I can speak as much as I like to, you know, say these things, like it's hard to do in practice. And yeah. I think that's also it too. Like life is exhausting. Trying to be the best person that you are is exhausting. And, um, it is a position of privilege to say, I'm not going to declare as a person. I'm just going to investigate. Like a lot of people can't live in that space. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Um, so I do have a couple more questions. In the spirit of repodcasting, please tell us about a movie which, in your opinion, needs some recasting. Okay. So we talked a little bit about this yes. over email. The number one movie I would recast is The Wolf of Wall Street. Leo DiCaprio was way too, way too old to be in that role. Like, Jordan Belfort? Is that the... Belfort, I think. Oh, shoot. I feel so bad. The character that he's playing is a re was a real person, and he was all of what happened in The Wolf of Wall Street happened before he was 27 years old. Oh, Consider wow. that. And so when I think, and Leonardo DiCaprio was 40 or a pro, like 39 when he did that, and to me, his age, 
he looked 40. He did not look like he was 20, 21. And for me, that rule in particular, the reason why people believed it and it was like he, he could get away with the partying and everything was that it was his first time for so many things. Like there's this joie de vivre that you have when you're like 20 to 25. Like we see it in like celebrities, right? Where they're wild and crazy. They have the energy for things that like you don't have when you're 40. It's not your first, it is your first time around the block for many, 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 many things. Also like the materialism and the total like opulence of his life, you can kind of forgive it in this trashy way for somebody who's like 21. But to see Leonardo DiCaprio with like makeup to hide his like under under eyes, like that was where I thought like the casting was very poor. Like had he been cast in that role during Catch Me If You Can time, totally on board, but not in the position where he was where I'm like, dude, you look the same age as like Matthew McConaughey or like the FBI officer who's going after you. Absolutely. I saw the movie once, but I don't recall if they say in the movie how old he's supposed to be. The thing I do remember watching it is thinking, oh, of course, you know, the guy with this amount of money goes for the young trophy wife. So I clearly didn't think the character was 27. It changes things, right? For sure. I think you can also believe the wild ride he's on if he's like just a dumb kid. Yeah. More so, yeah, for sure, than a 40-year-old man. Yeah, where you're like, oh, you're, like, skeezy. Like, (laughs) I mean, the character is skeezy, but there's a different sort of manic energy. It's kind of like the Fire Island guy. Like, he's pretty young. If he was a 50-year-old, people people really dislike this guy, but I think it would be a different story if it was, like, a 55-year-old white guy versus, like, a 25-year-old business bro who just has, like, a spark in his eye. Yeah, and doesn't know what he's getting himself into. Yeah, I remember reading something about Pride and Prejudice the same way, where Roger Ebert or someone was saying the reason why Keira Knightley or the Joe, the Joe Wright version works so well for this reviewer was that Keira Knightley, you could believe it was her first time falling in love. You truly could believe that and that there was something special. But in the version with um, Colin Firth, the one that Colin Firth is in, yeah. All of the actors were quite a bit older, still attractive and young, but it was hard to believe that these people who are in like maybe their late 20s or 30s are really going to fall for someone that way, like in a way that is really reserved for like first love. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And so do you have an idea of who you would cast instead of Leo? I thought a little bit about it. I thought that Garrett Hedlund, when he was younger, could have done it. He was cast in Tron, and he was also cast as Dean Moriarty in um, On the Road. So, and I think Dean Moriarty, in a lot of ways, shares that quality of, like, that spirit that people talk about. Of course, Dean Moriarty is too, he's not very focused in the way that, or ambitious in the way that, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street character is, but I thought that he could have done it. And he's also extremely handsome. <laughs> I bet you Zac Efron could do it. Oh. I think it could have been an interesting turn. I just saw him in The Beach Bum, which I really, I gave it a one out of five. Like, it's so bad. Okay. In my opinion, <laughs> sorry for the fans of him. Like, Harmony Kareem's earlier work is way better, all of the earlier work. But Zac Efron was actually, like, really good in it. And, yeah, now that I've seen him in this, he could have done that role, cool. I think. okay. Well, um, we're actually going to recast Wolf of Wall Street for our next episode. Oh, great. Looking forward to listening. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. And then lastly, I believe, what types of stories do you want to tell more of as a filmmaker? So I have some stories that I know I want to tell. And 
I guess without going into too much detail about them, I'm really interested in relationships between people, especially ones which are challenging for people to understand. So my next story will be a father-daughter story where both of them are lying to each other in pretty like kind of funny but sad ways. Like I'm really inspired by these people who I know who are like really, they're villains, like family villains, you know, um, gross uncle or the gross aunt, but then their kids still love them most of the time. That's really interesting to me. So I'm interested in that. Wow, that is not a, that's not an easy thing to tackle. That sounds amazing, like good for you. Yeah, I mean, a really good friend of mine was, I was talking to him about high school, he's like, you should do a high school rom-com. And I was like, I've never been interested in that, but maybe further down the line, I will do that. Mm-hmm. I really want to tell this, so much stuff, it's like I need more experience. Like I really want to do an erotic thriller, mm-hmm. but I'm not mm-hmm. there yet. I think when I'm like 40, then I'll be <laughs> ready to do it. I need some more time to, I guess, get like, <laughs> to have life experience for that one. But I think simply, I'm really interested in what people want and what they don't get. So I think a lot of what motivates people is like, the drive for something and more often than not you don't get it and so that's what I'm interested in and how much people want to go for it like the lengths that people go for things I can't wait to see what you do next thanks <laughs> yeah I'll have to share it with you uh, and come on the podcast again yeah <laughs> um, so I forgot I do have one more thing but uh, it's not quite film related one of the first stories that I heard about you when we started working together is that your aunt made the sweaters for the Cosby show. Am I saying that right? Yeah. (laughs) To qualify, she made some of the sweaters which appeared on the Cosby show. But yeah, yeah, my aunt is like a really incredible knitter and not just like hand knitting, but with machines and designs. So she did work. I'm not sure if it was freelance or with a company, but she did design some of the sweaters which made it onto the Cosby show. So I think the reason is because I was wearing a sweater and you're like, that's crazy. Where did you get that? I'm like, oh, it's from my aunt who, by the way, (laughs) made these uh, sweaters which appeared there. Yeah, Yeah. that's so cool because, I mean, the sweaters on that show are iconic. (laughs) Yeah. That's really amazing. Yeah. I don't know if she designed them, but she definitely was a part of the process, which is cool. And I'm glad that I got the the leftovers. Yeah, very cool. Well, uh, we're going to take a photo uh, that we'll share when we drop this episode so that you can see Jillian's amazing sweater. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Okay, cool. Well, thanks so much for joining me, Jillian. Yeah, thank you. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so join us for the next episode of Repodcasting, where we will recast Jillian's suggestions, The Wolf of Wall Street. Have fun. Thanks. Bye. This episode is brought to you in part by the Alberta Blue Cross Wellness Summit, which happens on October 10th. The Wellness Summit is a day to explore fresh perspectives and practices around wellness. This year, the focus is on what it takes to create healthy workplace cultures where everyone thrives. Supporting the health and wellness of employees is becoming a major consideration for many workplaces, and Alberta Blue Cross wants to connect the dots of what it takes to create healthier workplaces with happy people. Among the speakers is Victoria Granger, founder of Wellness Works Canada. She has 20 years of experience working with the public as well as not-for-profit and private organizations in developing, implementing, and evaluating comprehensive workplace wellness strategies. Alberta Blue Cross has designed the summit so that you're not just sitting and listening. 
you'll have a chance to actively engage with the information, the speakers, and other attendees, and will come away with practical tools and evidence-based resources you can use, whether you're a frontline worker or a C-suite executive. The summit is at the Renaissance Edmonton Airport Hotel on October 10th. Learn more at thewellnesssummit.ca.